0: Voting. It's that thing you do once every couple of years. That is, if you want to, and if you can. Today, in the U.S. and Canada, technically, everyone has the right to vote, with a couple of exceptions, like people with felony convictions in some American states. By the way, you can vote from prison in Canada. But overall, you have the right to vote as long as you're a citizen over the age of 18. But in the last federal election in the U.S., just over half of eligible voters cast their ballot, 55 percent, and it was 66 percent in Canada in 2019. Voting is a cornerstone of our democracy. So why don't many of us do it? I'm Hannah Sung. Welcome to the very first episode of What Do We Do Tomorrow, a podcast from Six Degrees at the Institute for Canadian Citizenship, made by the Walrus Lab. Today, we're talking about democracy, that imperfect, complex, but cherished institution, one that serves some of us more than others. Does democracy really all come down to the seemingly simple act of voting? So, the question I asked earlier why don't we all vote? Well, in the past, many of us were shut out of the vote. White women, black Americans, and black Canadians. Immigrants of various backgrounds, including Chinese-Americans and Chinese-Canadians, who built much of the early infrastructure of our countries, and the original peoples of this land, First Nations, Inuit, Métis, and Native American, all of these groups of people were shut out of the vote, being enfranchised at different times in our history. For Indigenous people in Canada, the only way they could vote was to exchange that right— for giving up their Indigenous identity and status until 1960. So that's the thorny past we come from, that in the beginning it was white, property-owning men who could vote. But today, the right extends to all citizens of voting age. Why doesn't everyone use that right? Is voting even the best way to exercise our democracy? Well, when it comes to voting, we've got a few problems. There's voter apathy and there's voter suppression
1: turning now to a new report that shows the massive scope of russia's disinformation campaign during the 2016 presidential election
2: according to the washington post the independent report which was prepared for the senate intel committee shows russians used every major social media platform to help elect president trump
1: the report also says russia worked to discourage opponents of the
0: candidate trump at the time discourage them from voting especially minority groups like african americans That clip from CBS News was about the independent report prepared for the Senate Intelligence Committee in the U.S. And there are many forms of voter suppression. We are hearing about a shameful amount of it coming out of the election in the U.S. right now. The simple act of voting isn't so simple. So before we can get to any real thoughts on our question of what do we do tomorrow, we should look back to history with a historian. Dr. Judith Goldstein is an author and scholar with a focus on the American history of Jewish immigration. She is the founder of Humanity in Action, which is an international organization that works to help young people become leaders in human rights issues. So she is as invested in the future as she is knowledgeable about the past. Thanks so much for making the time to speak with us today, Judith. I'm I'm really excited to get into this. I'm delighted to be here and to be speaking with you. Well, thank you. Yeah. So we're going to be talking about some very big picture thoughts on democracy. You're a historian and scholar, but you're also a citizen at a very important time in history in the U.S. And I just want to know, you know, what life is like for Judith Goldstein, the citizen right now?
1: It's extremely complex. It's extremely unstable or fragile. And we're, I would say, filled with uncertainty about what citizenship means. Because we're in a position now where we're testing the mechanisms of citizenship, or the mechanisms we expected to use in the democracy to exercise our right as citizens.
0: Okay, so I, I'm not American, obviously. I'm coming to you from Toronto, Canada, and um In the past four years, I've felt a lot of political fatigue when it comes to keeping up with American politics. I mean, there's just a level of like shock and then outrage and then fatigue, you know, and it's a cycle. And I'm wondering, what is that balance of right now, this extreme vigilance and attention on
1: politics, but also the fatigue? Well, the fatigue comes from the instability. The fatigue comes from not knowing how things are going to work out. It comes from the really profound fear that the one tool that is left for us to use in this democracy is the vote. And we now see all permutations of corruption of the vote. Now, on one side, there is, you know, get out the vote, which is terrific, which is making people more engaged. On the other side, there's the repression of the vote, which is a longstanding issue. So, you know, I was thinking, What can we look to in the future? Which is often, you know, in a sense, an election is about the future. Now, it may not be resolved on November 3rd or 4th or 5th, but essentially we're going to know whether we change and then restore the possibility of a stronger democracy or whether we stay with the present administration, in which case the various tools that this administration has used will be intensified and the aspects of a semi-authoritarian, certainly deeply, deeply divided society.
0: I want to go back to something that you said a little while ago about how there is one tool left for people, and it's to vote. And I want to talk a little bit about voter suppression. How is voter suppression playing out right now?
1: Oh, it's playing out in multiple forms. It's playing out, for example, when governors of various Republican states close down the number of places where people can vote or where they can drop their ballots. For example, in the state of Texas, the governor has said there will be one drop box per county. What is the justification for that? That he wants to assure that there's integrity in the voting, that there isn't mischief at the various voting places, But it is a blatant attempt to diminish the number of voters. It's a blatant attempt to make it hard for voters who come from modest backgrounds or, you know, really economically underprivileged backgrounds to vote. They have tried to prevent voting by absentee ballot, to restrict the number of people, particularly during the coronavirus, who can vote but not do it in person. So everything you can do to make it hard for the Hispanic, the Black, the Native American, whatever you can do to make it difficult, you do. Because the Democrats rely upon those votes to make significant inroads. And the Republicans know that they are a minority party, and therefore suppressing the vote is what they need to do. This reflects a very long tradition. A very long tradition that was interrupted in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s uh, with the Civil Rights Movement, where the states were held accountable for running fair elections and fair voting processes. And how were they held accountable? Uh, The Justice Department, the federal government, oversaw numerous states and counties to make sure that the procedures in place were not exploitive or oppressive. Does that
0: not happen today?
1: No. Why not? Because of a Supreme Court ruling in which the Supreme Court simply removed this oversight. And so we've lost one of the key tools which was put in place to give greater equity and greater voice. Again, just to go back, this follows a long tradition popularly known as Jim Crow, which essentially reduced the black population to inferior citizenship. They had citizenship, but had none of the tools that citizenship should give them. And it meant a deeply repressive society, which essentially said that this rich country, this wonderfully expansive country, this post-Second World War superpower country, that its resources were not to be shared equitably, Uh, within the population, or even giving people the opportunity to share in those resources. I keep coming back as a historian to the narrative of the history, to what we tell ourselves about the past, and how do we reconcile the anger, which is enormous. It is simply not to be underestimated and not to be discounted. The anger of exclusion, the anger of deprivation, how do we deal with that? When in fact, those who've been excluded have really lost patience. So many
0: people feel excluded, you know, white people feel excluded, black people feel excluded and people who feel like they don't have anything in common and they just see their differences all feel excluded. And I'm wondering, in a time where that feeling of exclusion that you describe is so real, how do you bring people back to this simple act of voting? How do you say this is going to be a thing that you can empower yourself with? I mean, you know, you're talking about belief systems and and we're talking about some very big issues. How
1: can it be as simple as just voting? I, I, I think voting carries with it a whole set of attitudes. And we have not educated ourselves sufficiently as to what freedom means, what democracy means, what voting means, what participating means. We've been very lazy and very passive. We've just sort of said, this is the system. And so it didn't work for some, but it really worked for most of us. And so let's just keep it going. But we've squandered the time when we could have dug deeply into what it means to take responsibility for others. Now, in America, there are two vastly different views about what society should do, or how the individual should relate to the society. A part of Americans feel that it 's just the individual, the individual and in his or her family, which counts and therefore, if you have to protect yourselves, you have guns. You know if you don 't want to wear a mask, you don 't because you decide what is best, and the sense of community among many is extremely narrow. Also often, to be perfectly honest, expressed in the churches, which reinforce that individualism. And that's a long history in America of capitalism, individualism, Calvinism and whatever. But there's also, you know, another powerful wave in American history, which is forming community, forming community on the frontier. I mean every whole quantum is a frontier. So you had to have community, and you had to have regulations, and we've been fighting over the degree and the intrusion and the need. We've been fighting for centuries over what that means. We're never going to resolve them, but we're certainly at a moment now where the differences are not just jarring, but they are deeply dangerous to the society. And it's lost in its own confusion, in its own fears. doesn't even have a vocabulary. We can't agree on what certain words mean. For example, white supremacy is now deeply contested as a concept. How do you use it? Is it a source of defense or aggressiveness? I mean, these things are deeply complicated. So, you know, we are constantly testing ourselves. But I think the American experiment is... A profoundly difficult one. And the question is, can we extend the democracy that we extended to immigrants? Can we extend it today to blacks and to the immigrants who are identified now as being totally unworthy of American citizenship or even existence in in this country? It's all out there. There's nothing hidden anymore. Uh, That's got its pluses and minuses. You have talked about how we're on
0: the brink of something and you've talked about the origins of the American society, which is built on colonialism and like a theft, a real theft of of land and, and slavery. And it's like, wow, okay, I didn't know <laughs> we were going to – this is like – I don't want to be like listing a whole bunch of like <laughs> terrible – you know, uh, that's not what I – set out to do, but it was something that you said as well is that when you talk about how the divisions can grow even deeper, it makes me feel like there must be a way to repair those divisions as well then. And I wonder, when you talk about individualism versus community, what are the ways that people can build community? And, and I do want to tie that to voting because you were talking about the attitudes that come along with voting.
1: Well, uh, for one thing, we're going to have to reset the conversation. We're going to have to reset our education so that we are much more knowledgeable about what freedom means, what democracy means, what voting entails. And do you mean literally
0: the educational system, the curriculum? Yeah. What would you like to see?
1: I would like to see a civics education, which isn't narrow, rigid, exhausted, which doesn't preach, go out and vote, but explains what it means to take responsibility to vote and what it means for some in the society not to have the vote, what it means to try to deprive parts of the population of the vote. I think we have to be much more honest about the reality And I think we're capable of doing it because we're entering, hopefully, a period where we are going to reconsider so many things. So the individualism, well, we run a a program called Humanity in Action, and it's for university students. It's to work on issues of democracy and pluralism, and it's to engage in collaborative learning. Now, this is different from the kind of learning you have at a university or college. When you go to college, you, now I'm going to be slightly cynical, but you do your socializing by socializing, whatever that means, and you do your learning for yourself. Essentially, you judge how you are doing by your own capacity to learn, which then is represented or illuminated by how well you do. Your grades. Your grades, mm-hmm. that's it. And I say nobody else gets the grades for you. You get the grades for yourself. And you carry those grades with you. In the Humanity in Action program, the effort is to have people learn together about very difficult issues, which means engaging in discussions that are often painful. They're not just traumatic, uh, but they are also can be aggressive and, and sometimes not very helpful because... If you're talking about diversity, you're talking about democracy, you're talking about belonging, if you have a diverse group, which is what we do, then there are going to be major differences. So we, uh, as an organization, have tried to build a sense of community through diversity, but by discussion on very difficult issues, which is not... I mean, part of the society is trying to come to terms with these differences by having training sessions in prejudice and bias, and implicit all the rest bias of it. training, implicit bias in the workplace. It's big, yeah, it's a big, big issue. And is it a step? Yes, it's a step forward, but it's also a step backward. In many respects, it's very, very sensitive and difficult, and simply not the answer to how we have to. I think conceive of our personal responsibilities, which are both political and personal and familial and community-based. So, uh, you know, all of this has to be renegotiated and re-understood. Therefore, I, I know you rightly come back to the vote, but the vote, I think, needs to be not just a mechanical act of going out and saying, in the American context, Democrat or Republican. The vote has to be infused by a sense of what's at stake and what kind of country we want to have and not just do I pick this horse or the other horse because there's too much at stake, there's too much meaning and we are simply too ignorant and too afraid, too afraid because some are going to gain and some are going to lose. And the white class that has enjoyed the privileges and the resources and the vote which it has enjoyed a kind of exclusive hold on all of that, it's going to have to share and give up and recognize, in effect, what was the price that everybody has paid to get where we are. The final thing I would say is that people must be entertained to the extent they can. A sense of hope and expectation and need to support the democracy and freedom and decency But also be deeply concerned that we have to work hard to sustain it. And we have to work harder than we have ever worked before. I think people are ready to work. I do, too. Yeah. I do, too. But it's very complex and very debilitating and very exhausting and very challenging. But it's our job. Well, thank you so much
0: today for this this conversation between you and I. It wasn't difficult at all, Judith. I totally and thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you. Well, thank you. As we publish this podcast episode, the American election still hasn't happened yet. But as Judith said, these problems are only going to be fixed by long-term, face-to-face conversations that are built around community, not scoring points the way we think of debates. I mean, did this do anything for anyone? I'm not going to answer the question Why because the question left. is, the question is, the question
1: is, listen, who is on your list, Joe? This Who's is on your so, list? gentlemen, this I think this is so list. We have ended this segment. We're going to move on to the second
2: segment. That was really a productive segment. Now,
0: while Judith's organization emphasizes in-person conversations, there's a Facebook group that caught our eye in British Columbia, Canada. BC First Nations Rock the Vote is a Facebook page that shares information on how to vote and news stories involving Indigenous people in politics. And one of the people who runs the group is Michael Sasakamus.
2: It was my birthday on Monday and, um, you know, how people usually wish you happy birthday on your social media and then you, after the next day or whatever, you post the traditional thanks everyone for wishing me happy birthday, I had a great day post. Um, well, my birthday always seems to fall around a federal or a provincial election. So whenever I make that post, I always uh, make sure I let everybody know that that all I want for my birthday this year is for uh, everybody to get out and vote. So if you want to get
0: me something, um, there you go. <laughs> Michael is about as passionate as it gets when it comes to exercising the right to vote we gave her a call just as people were about to cast their votes during a pandemic for the first time to vote for their local representatives in the provincial election.
2: My name is Michael Akramas, and I am one of the admins for the BC First Nations Rock the Vote Facebook page. And I am here in the beautiful Coast Salish Territory outside Vancouver in Burnaby, I am a member of the Atakuku Cree Nation, and I am also Shishwap in Okanagan, and was born and raised in my community um, on the Kalamazoo Reserve, just uh, outside of Kamloops.
0: B.C. First Nations Rock the Vote was founded by Anna Thomas, who was the new Democratic Party candidate in the Kamloops South Thompson riding in the B.C. election. Thomas did not win her riding. But it's important to say that the formation of this Facebook page back in 2015 was never meant to be partisan.
2: Shortly after she started the group, we got talking. We were very active in sharing information on our social media about news that was relevant to First Nations in particular, um, especially during the 2015 federal election. And at the time, um, a lot of stuff was happening and a lot of Indigenous people were just getting involved in, in the process around the country. And we just wanted to encourage people in British Columbia to also get involved. Um, we had been you know, just normally posting a lot of stuff on our pages, whether it was news articles or just information on on how people could vote and where they could vote, and you know, even just information about the history of of First Nations people and voting in this country. Just everything, just trying to get
0: as much information out as we could. The Facebook group grew. There are multiple admins now who help keep the direction of the conversation on track. We have around
2: 2,500 members now, I think, and everyone really participates uh, in the process. And it's more of a community, I think, where all of our our members are sharing information and participating in conversations um, about what's happening and and trying to let each other know just as much as, as we ever tried to let people know. So it's really been an organic process that has evolved to this really group effort that it's kind of become.
0: Well, congratulations, because I don't think it's easy to run a Facebook group that, you know, where people can speak respectfully about politics, you know, and to keep it going for so many years. So I think it's quite an accomplishment. Thank you. Yeah.
2: And, you know, it's funny that you say that, but really, I mean, people, they just are. And, and just because We're all First Nations doesn't mean we all have the same opinions or beliefs. Um, That's another thing about our page is that we don't advocate for anything in specific except for people to learn and engage in the process. Um, We don't advocate for any specific party or candidates unless they're Indigenous candidates. In that case, we're all super proud of them and very excited that they're participating in the process. And we want to get behind them um, no matter what party they support or belong to. Um, And so just from that perspective, I think that, you know, people are just doing what they're doing and, and everyone just kind of is happy that we're, that we have this space and, and, you know, people do have disagreements and they do have uh, debates, but it's it's very healthy and it's very respectful. And uh, I think everyone is willing to talk amongst each other um, about some hard things sometimes, but, um, it, it generally goes over really well and, and
0: everybody um,
2: takes a group pretty seriously and is very respectful of each other, I find.
0: You're an admin for a group that's all about rocking the vote. But what does that mean in terms of the attitudes that come along with voting and specifically, you know, from an Indigenous perspective?
2: Well, I think that's a really complicated question because it's a complicated history. And I think that First Nations people in Canada really struggle with the fact of trusting elected officials, trusting the, you know, the kind of powers that be the government in this country because of our our history and our, like, ongoing relationship with representatives of government in, in Canada. And I think that, you know, there are a lot of, First Nations people who don't want to participate in this process because of those trust issues uh, who feel like participating in this process, one is not worthwhile because their voice isn't going to be heard. And two, maybe they don't want to participate in it because they don't want to acknowledge that colonial process. Um, and, and that's totally okay that people feel that way. And that, and I totally respect that. And There's other people who maybe feel that this, and this includes me, is that this isn't it. You know, voting isn't the one thing that solves all our problems. Voting is a tool that we have to work towards our goals and our objectives as a people in this country. And that's all. It's a tool. But it's a very powerful tool. And so we're trying to encourage people, and I think a lot of other um, First Nations people agree with this thought process, is that we want to encourage more First Nations people to use that tool so that we can steer processes that happen in this country to be more responsive to our, our issues and our concerns through that process. But it's only one way. It's not the only way, and I fully acknowledge that.
0: Well, thank you so much, Michael, for making the time to speak with us and for explaining BC First Nations Rock the Vote to us. No problem. Um yeah, I hope uh, I hope I did it. uh Anna proud. <laughs> Democracy is a living, breathing, complex thing. So there isn't going to be one fix. But when it comes to what do we do tomorrow? Well, here's Michael. The most important thing is that We shouldn't just be trying to work hard to get
2: people to vote when it's time to vote. We should be making sure that when it's time to vote, everyone is ready and prepared as best as they can be to participate in a process like that so that it will be meaningful to them, so that it will have the right impacts in their communities. So I think ultimately if you want to talk about what do we do tomorrow... And, and how do we change? I mean, as First Nations people, inherently, that's what we do. We've always persevered. We've always adapted. It's part of our culture. We're always evolving and we're always learning about our environment. And this is the environment that we're in right now. So I think this group really helps us. So when it comes time to make a choice or, or to really m- make an impact on something that's happening, we're
0: ready to do that. So here's my takeaway from all the beautifully complex, idealistic, but realistic points our guests made today. What do we do tomorrow? Talk politics every day. Have that really hard, difficult, messy conversation in real life, face to face. And when you're online, share good information. Have conversations about politics, including facts and naming your representatives. And feel the responsibility of being entrusted to be informed and to help inform others. That's what you can do tomorrow, regardless of whether there's an election happening or not. Because what you do tomorrow and the next day is the path toward that next election. And as we've seen time and again, but especially recently, election results can really change lives, which means your vote can too. Thank you for listening to our very first episode of What Do We Do Tomorrow? We have lots more in store for you. In upcoming episodes, we'll discuss structural racism. Building inclusive communities and business practices that make sense. Make sure you're subscribed. We're on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. This episode was produced by Noah Snyderman. Executive producers are Aisha Jara and David Leonard of ICC and Six Degrees, the Global Forum for Inclusion, and Mihira Lakshman at the Walrus Lab. I'm your host, Hannah Sung. If you like what you heard, share this. Forward this podcast to a friend. Spark that conversation on politics by sending them this podcast. And you can get on all the socials. Tell us your thoughts on what do we do tomorrow. Use the hashtag TomorrowPodcast. That's T-O-M-O-R-R-O-W podcast. To see more from the ICC and Six Degrees, please visit inclusion.ca. Thanks for listening.